Welcome to Salon Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Salon Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Salon Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring readings by Danez Smith, Kimiko Han, Jericho Brown, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. In this episode, we hear from Jane Hirschfield, who joined us in March 2009 at Benaroya Hall for a reading of poems spanning across her career and for a discussion on the importance of inviting the intimacies of poetry and finding ways to say yes to the difficult. Described by The New Yorker as radiant and passionate, Hirschfield is now the author of eight collections of verse, many of which are influenced by her Zen Buddhist practice and her knowledge of classical Japanese verse, and which are concerned with the many dimensions of our connections with others. Here, Hirschfield's reading is followed by a conversation with Sal's associate director, Rebecca Hoogs, who also introduces the poet. It is a great honor to be here, to be here tonight with Jane Hirschfield. I emphasize the here-ness, the tonight-ness, because there is perhaps no other contemporary poet so known for attending to the present moment as Jane Hirschfield. Over the course of six books of poetry, one of prose, and three groundbreaking anthologies, Hirschfield's attention to the world, both inner and outer, has inspired countless readers to do the same. The poems are so open-hearted and marvelously conceived, wrote the Washington Post, that they are not just beautiful themselves, but effortlessly contain beauty. What's more, they make us suddenly aware of what we too contain at every savored moment of the day. Her work is at once ethereal and ethical, mindful yet spacious. David St. John described her poems as delicate metaphysical reflections, And I would agree, but add that they are delicate only in the way that spider silk is delicate. Her poems are as strong as steel, able to stretch without breaking, able to hold many times their weight of difficult ideas and heavy thoughts. Concerns about judgment, certainty, and human agency have been a pulse running through her life and her poems, wrote a reviewer. Yet the poems also pulse with pleasure, grace, and praise. Her poetic practice developed in part as a result of her practice of Zen Buddhism, which she began in earnest soon after graduating from Princeton University as part of the first class to include women. Traveling west in 1974, she found her path led her to the Tassajara Monastery in the Ventana Wilderness of California. She spent the next eight years there as a full-time Zen student, three of them in monastic practice. Yet the roots of her interest in Zen and an austere life were deep-set. She remembers being very little and lamenting to her mother that they weren't Catholic and so she couldn't be a nun when she grew up. (laughs) And the first book of poetry she bought from a stationery store on a busy New York City street was a $1 book of Japanese haiku. She was eight years old. Zen taught me how to pay attention, she has said, how to delve, how to question and enter, how to stay with, or at least want to try to stay with, whatever is going on. 
This delving, questioning, and staying with has led her to poems which have led her to acclaim and awards, including fellowships from the Guggenheim and Rockefeller Foundations and the 70th Academy of Fellowship for Distinguished Poetic Achievement by the Academy of American Poets. It has also led her back to a work she thought she had forked away from when she'd chosen college to focus on a writing life rather than a scholar's life, the work of translating and collecting the poems of classical Chinese and Japanese women poets. During my time in a Zen monastery, during my, my mid-twenties, she has said of her unknowing preparation for translating these women poets, I lived in a way not so very different from Komachi in Shikibu, wearing robes, living without electricity, glass windows or heat, in a way outwardly formal and inwardly free. This means that I knew things in the poems from the inside out, as a plant grown on similar soil, which a more properly accredited scholar might only have been able to approximate from the outside in. Her work embodies this inside-out movement, this transfer, this transport, from the emotional life to the physical, from the indoor to the outdoor, from the animal to the human. She gives attention to all, even to the smallest parts of speech. In one of my favorite part poems from her most recent book, After, she writes a poem to the word to, and ends by musing that, quote, we say today, tomorrow, but from yesterday, like us, you have vanished, end quote. How lucky we are to have arrived at this particular today and to be able to say tonight, we welcome you, Jane Hirschfield, and invite you to join us in this particular now. Well, um, <laughs> it really was an extraordinary introduction and I feel so lucky to be um, in Seattle, which is, uh, you know, Seattle and the, and the larger surrounding area, one of the great homes for reading, writing, publishing, uh, the celebration of the word in this country. Um, you, you are an extraordinary community, and I feel so happy to be a carpetbagger amongst you. Um, and, and I thank everybody who has um, allowed me to be here tonight. I'm going to start with a poem I almost always start readings with. It is the earliest poem uh, that I still feel a strong life connection with in, in, uh, of what I've written. And I never know if I should call it a love poem or an end of love poem because it is both those things for what binds us. There are names for what binds us. Strong forces, weak forces. Look around, you can see them. The skin that forms in a half-empty cup, nails rusting into the places they join, joints dovetailed on their own weight. The way things stay so solidly, wherever they've been set down, and gravity, scientists say, is weak. And see how the flesh grows back across a wound with a great vehemence, more strong than the simple, untested surface before. There's a name for it on horses when it comes back darker and raised. Proud flesh. As all flesh is proud of its wounds, wears them as honors given out after battle, 
small triumphs pinned to the chest. And when two people have loved each other, see how it is like a scar between their bodies, stronger, darker, and proud. How the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can tear or mend. And this next poem I also very often read because in it I am acknowledging the debt I feel to all of the writers who work in places in the world less fortunate than is my opportunity. People who may not have access to pen or paper or electricity, uh, people who may not have access to publication, or if their work is known in their home community, it might not be translated into English and might never be knowable. Um, and yet I'm absolutely sure that at this moment, somewhere in the world, someone is writing a truly great poem under those circumstances, um, and that my life is changed because of that. The poet. She is working now in a room not unlike this one, the one where I write or you read. Her table is covered with paper. The light of the lamp would be tempered by a shade where the bulb's single harshness might dissolve, but it is not. She has taken it off. Her poems, I will never know them, though they are the ones I most need. Even the alphabet she writes in, I cannot decipher. Her chair, let us imagine whether it is leather or canvas, vinyl or wicker. Let her have a chair, her shadeless lamp, the table. Let one or two she loves be in the next room. Let the door be closed, the sleeping ones healthy. Let her have time and silence, enough paper to make mistakes and go on. I should tell you, I'm going to be reading, um, the, the first part is going to be published poems and then I'm hoping to have just about the last half of the reading be, be newer, newer work. So any of you who've heard me before, you will hear some things you haven't heard. Um, One of the great intimacies of poetry for which I am deeply grateful is that it continually reminds me of my permeability um, to other people, to other beings, uh, to uh, the full spectrum of feelings that inhabit a human life. And since all these things are going to pass through us, whether we uh, want them to or not, it is, it is a good thing to invite the permeability or make some kind of a peace with it, at least. And, and this is a poem which, which speaks to that. The Envoy. One day in that room, a small rat. Two days later, a snake. Who, seeing me enter, whipped the long stripe of his body under the bed, then curled like a docile house pet. 
I don't know how either came or left. Later, the flashlight found nothing. For a year I watched as something, terror, happiness, grief, entered and then left my body, not knowing how it came in, not knowing how it went out. It hung where words could not reach it. It slept where light could not go. Its scent was neither snake nor rat, neither sensualist nor ascetic. There are openings in our lives of which we know nothing. Through them, the belled herds travel at will, long-legged and thirsty, covered with foreign dust. This next poem uh, takes its image terrain from Greek mythology, but it's actually probably better if you don't remember which myth it is um, tentatively associated. Each moment a white bull steps shining into the world. If the gods bring to you a strange and frightening creature, accept the gift as if it were one you had chosen. Say the accustomed prayers, oil the hooves well, caress the small ears with praise. Have the new halter of woven silver embedded with jewels, spare no expense, pay what is asked when a gift arrives from the sea. Treat it as you yourself would be treated, brought speechless and naked into the court of a king. And when the request finally comes, do not hesitate even an instant. Stroke the white throat, the heavy, trembling dewlaps you've come to believe were yours, and plunge in the knife. Not once did you enter the pasture without pause, without yourself trembling. That you came to love it, that was the gift. Let the envious gods take back what they can. The adamantine perfection of desire. Nothing more strong than to be helpless before desire. No reason, the simplified heart whispers, the argument over, only this no longer choosing anything but assent. Its bowl scraped clean to the bottom, the skull bone cup no longer horrifies, but rimmed in silver shines. A spotted dog follows a bitch in heat, gray geese fly past us crying. The living cannot help but love the world. So a lot of uh, these poems I'm reading are about uh, finding some way to say yes to the difficult. Um, and this one might be the most, it's the shortest and perhaps the most quintessential statement of it. 
And the cold water it's referring to is the cold water of uh, my three years in the monastery where, where there was no hot water in our, in our rooms along with no electricity, no heat, and uh, plastic instead of glass over the windows in these days. They've got it really cushy now. They've got glass windows. And a few of the cabins have electricity from the solar installation. Um, so I get to say, oh, the good old days when life was hard. <laughs> a cedary fragrance. Even now, decades after, I wash my face with cold water, not for discipline, nor memory, nor the icy awakening slap but to practice choosing to make the unwanted wanted. So I travel a lot, and travel, of course, is very disruptive of one's life, but even traveling, you develop certain things that you do. Um, so this is, this is a poem that, if you had asked me five minutes before I wrote it if I could write a poem on the subject of habit in our lives, I would have said, oh, that's a very good idea, somebody else could do that, I couldn't possibly. And then one day I found myself writing this. So, habit. The shoes put on each time, left first, then right. The morning potion's teaspoon of sweetness stirred always for seven circlings, no fewer, no more, into the cracked blue cup. Touching the pocket for wallet, for keys, before closing the door. How did we come to believe these small rituals promise? That we are today the selves we yesterday knew, tomorrow will be. How intimate and unthinking the way the toothbrush is shaken dry after use, the part we wash first in the bath. Which habits we learned from others and which are ours alone, we may never know. Unbearable to acknowledge how much they are themselves our fated life. Open the traveling suitcase. There, the beloved red sweater, bright tangle of necklace, earrings of amber, each confirming, I chose these, I. But habit is different, it chooses. And we, it's good horse, opening our mouths at even the sight of the bit. Poem with two endings. Say death and the whole room freezes. Even the couches stop moving, even the lamps. Like a squirrel suddenly aware it is being looked at. Say the word continuously and things begin to go forward. Your life takes on the jerky texture of an old film strip. Continue saying it. Hold it moment after moment inside the mouth. It becomes another syllable. A shopping mall swirls around the corpse of a beetle. Death is voracious. 
it swallows all the living. Life is voracious, it swallows all the dead. Neither is ever satisfied, neither is ever filled, each swallows and swallows the world. The grip of life is as strong as the grip of death. But the vanished, the vanished beloved, oh, where? So I thought I should cheer you up after that poem. Um, This next one is a poem I began reading when it started to look like the election was going to go right. Um, (laughs) And um, I I was sort of uh, very surprised and happy uh, last month uh, Garrison Keillor read it on Writer's Almanac on my birthday and wished me a happy birthday. Um, so, optimism. More and more I have come to admire resilience. Not the simple resistance of a pillow whose foam returns over and over to the same shape, but the sinuous tenacity of a tree Finding the light newly blocked on one side, it turns in another. A blind intelligence, true, but out of such persistence arose turtles, rivers, mitochondria, figs, all this resinous, unretractable earth. I was talking with someone a couple of hours ago about the fact that uh, my most recent book is full of poems about Pam Houston's dogs. Uh, This one, the border collie was my dog, the second dog is her dog. (laughs) Theology. If the flies did not hurry themselves to the window, they'd still die somewhere. Other creatures choose the other dimension to slip into a thicket, swim into the shaded, undercut part of the stream. My dog would make her tennis ball disappear into just such a hollow, pushing it under the water with both paws, then dig for it furiously, wildly, until it popped up again. A game or a theology? I couldn't tell. (laughs) The flies might well prefer the dawn-ribboned mouth of a trout, its crisp and speed, if they could get there, though they are not in truth that kind of fly, and preference is not given often in these matters. A border collie's preference is to do anything entirely with the whole attention. This Simone Weil called prayer. And almost always her prayers were successful. The tennis ball could be summoned again to the surface. When a friend's new pound dog, diagnosed, distempered, doctored for weeks, crawled under the porch to die, my friend crawled after, pulled her out, said, no, 
as if to live were just a simple matter of training. The koi dog, startled, obeyed. <laughs> Now trots out to greet my car when I come to visit. Only a firefly's evening blinking outside the window, this miraculous story. But everyone hurries to believe it. So I have been immensely enjoying uh, Mount Rainier's clarity this last couple of days. So I thought I would read you um, a poem that has my local mountain, which similarly plays hide-and-seek sometimes. Um, the title is deceptive. The title of the poem is Vilnius, and that is the uh, capital city of Lithuania. Um, but you'll, you'll see. Vilnius. For a long time, I keep the guidebooks out on the table. In the morning, drinking coffee, I see the spines. St. Petersburg, Vilnius, Vienna. Choices pondered, but not finally taken. Behind them, sometimes behind thick fog, the mountain. If you lived higher up on the mountain, I find myself thinking, What you would see is more of everything else, but not the mountain. So there are lots of poems in this book that consider strange things, um, like the poem that Rebecca mentioned in the introduction, which goes on at some length talking about two. Uh, there's one about and, there's one about of. Um, and then there's also ones about um, parts of our human psyche. Uh, there's one on envy, there's one on judgment. And I, I thought I'd read you the one on opinion. Um, you know, something, something that poetry does is it lets you look at parts of your life in ways that no other approach quite gives you the same mode of insight. So, so I, I just was, I don't know, moved during the, during the years that I was writing this book in particular to start stepping back and kind of dismantling and investigating some of these things in, in myself and, and most of the rest of us. So, to opinion. Oh, the poem is, uh, it, it, it's in the second person. It's, I suppose, a kind of ode. And so the you in the, in the poem is opinion. Many capacities have been thought to define the human. Yet, finches and wasps use tools. Speech comes into this world in many forms. Perhaps it is you, opinion. Though I cannot know for certain, I doubt the singing dolphins have opinions. This thought, of course, is you. A mosquito's estimation of her meal, however subtle, is not an opinion. That's my opinion, too. <laughs> to think about you is to step into your arms, a thicket, pitfall. When you come rising strongly in me, I feel myself grow separate and more lonely. Even when others share you, this is so. Darwin said, no fact or description that fails to support an argument can serve. 
Mioe wrote, bright, 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 the moon. Last night, there were whole minutes when you released me. Ocean, 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 was the sound the sand made of the moonlit waves breaking on it. I felt no argument with any part of my life. Not even with you, opinion, who drifted in salt waters with the bullwhip kelp and phosphorescent plankton, nibbling my legs and ribcage to remind me where others end and I begin. Good joke, I agreed with you, companion opinion. <laughs> the heat of autumn. The heat of autumn is different from the heat of summer. One ripens apples, the other turns them to cider. One is a dock you walk out on, the other the spine of a thin swimming horse, and the river each day a full measure colder. A man with cancer leaves his wife for his lover. Before he goes, she straightens his belts in the closet, rearranges the socks and sweaters inside the dresser by color. That's autumn heat. Her hand placing silver buckles with silver, gold buckles with gold, setting each on the hook it belongs on in a closet soon to be empty and calling it pleasure. I am singularly fond of very short poems, uh, going back perhaps to that early love of haiku. Um, and so there, there are, there's a series of 17 very short poems in this most recent book, and I'm just going to read you three of them. Uh, the first one I've been delighted to start getting news back from the world. It's being taught in uh, environmental courses and somebody told me he was going to put it into a legal brief. Um, and what I like about it best is it's actually obsolete. It was written before Al Gore came out with An Inconvenient Truth. So in fact, it's not nearly as true now as it was some years ago. Global warming. When his ship first came to Australia, Cook wrote, the natives continued fishing without looking up, unable, it seems, to fear what was too large to be comprehended. Um, you've already had this idea in another poem, but I'm just very fascinated with animals and, and you know, every time they do another, another close look, they find out they're closer to us than people used to think. So this, this short poem is Tool Use in Animals. For a long time it was thought the birds were warning, panther, panther. Then someone understood. The birds were scavengers. The cry was, human, human. <laughs> True story. Um, as, of course, was the cook one. 
Uh, so this next one is the shortest you'll hear tonight. It's one sentence long, it's titled sentence, and that's meant in both the grammatical way and also in the, um, you know, somebody being sentenced to their, to their fate. Sentence. The body of a starving horse cannot forget the size it was born to. And that, of course, it is literally true in that a horse's skeleton does not get smaller, but I also was thinking of us and that no matter what happens to a person in the course of their life, there is some original magnitude which cannot be stripped from them, I think. So I um, was lucky enough to be friends with the great Polish poet Czesław Miłosz, um, who won the Nobel in 1980 and lived in exile, taught, taught and lived in Berkeley for 40 years, which is why I was lucky enough to know him. Um, he died at 92 in 2004, and there's an elegy for him in this book, but I'm not going to read that. I am going to read a poem I wrote for his wife, who was 37 years younger than he was and died two years before he did. Um, so they had moved to Krakow at the end of his life after the Velvet Revolution. They were invited uh, back and he was given an apartment in Poland so he could speak his native language again. Um, and, and I visited them there, uh, but at the end of Carol's life, she thought she had a little inexplicable anemia and came home to see uh, her American doctors and her mother, and um, it turned out to be leukemia. Uh, the title of the poem, The Bell Zygmunt, is a large, famous bell in the major cathedral in Krakow. The Bell Zygmunt. For fertility, a new bride is lifted to touch it with her left hand or possibly kiss it. The sound close in, my friend told me later, is almost silent. At 10 kilometers, even those who have never heard it know what it is. If you stand near during thunder, she said, you will hear a reply. Six weeks and six days from the phone's small ringing, replying was over. She who cooked lamb and loved wine and wild mushroom pastas, she who when I saw her last was silent as the great Sigmund mostly is, a ventilator's clapper between her dry lips. Because I could, I spoke. She laid her palm on my cheek to answer, and soon again to say it was time to leave. I put my lips near the place a tube went into the back of one hand. The kiss, as if it knew what I did not yet, both full and formal. As one would kiss the ring of a cardinal or the rim of that cold iron bell, whose speech can mean great joy, or equally, the city is burning, come.
So now I'm going to move on to some poems that aren't in book form yet. Um, in the little dressing room back here, there's a uh, shiny black upright piano for practicing my scales, I guess, beforehand. Uh, the last time I had a dressing room with a piano in it uh, was when I got to read a poem at Carnegie Hall as part of a song cycle, so I had a full symphony orchestra uh, playing with and through me as I read. Talk about permeability. Um, and the second piece on the program was Mahler's Fifth, and this poem came a few days after that experience. French, so I was back home in California when I wrote it. French horn. For a few days only, the plum tree outside the window shoulders perfection. No matter the plums will be small, eaten only by squirrels and jays. I feast on the one thing, they on another, the shoaling bees on a third. What in this unpleated world isn't someone's seduction? The boy playing his intricate horn in Mahler's fifth, in the gaps between playing, turns it and turns it, dismantles a section, shakes from it the condensation of human passage. He is perhaps 20. Later, he takes his four bows, his face deepening red, while a girl holds a viola's spruce wood and maple in one half-opened hand and looks at him hard. Let others clap. These two, their ears still ringing, hear nothing. Not the shouts of bravo, bravo, not the tympanic clamor inside their bodies. As the plums blossoms, do not hear the bee nor taste themselves turned into storable honey by that sumptuous disturbance. So that poem was in The New Yorker a few weeks ago, and I had no idea I know so many people who have connections to the French horn. Some of whom thanked me for that bit about the condensation of human passage because they said, gosh, I always thought it was just spit. <laughs> so I imagine many of you have gardens and I imagine that you have deer up here as we do at home. The supple deer. The quiet opening between fence strands, perhaps 18 inches. Antlers to hind hooves, four feet off the ground, the deer poured through. No tuft of the coarse white belly hair left behind. I don't know how a stag turns into a stream, an arc of water. I have never felt such accurate envy not of the deer, to be that porous, to have such largeness pass through me. Let alone the confidence. I mean, this stag had a big rack, 
and he just went through this tiny space perfectly. Um, so I'll have to decide which of these I'm actually going to read, but I'm going to give you the little run of four poems with food references. Um, and, you know, in each of them, they're not actually about their foodstuffs. They're, they are food thinking in the service of something else. But I was down at uh, Pike's Place Market today and, and reveling and looking at all of the uh, produce. And I'm a little early. I was hoping to go home with copious amounts of wild mushrooms, but apparently they're not in yet. Uh, so anyhow, four, four, four poems with food references. Vinegar and oil. Wrong solitude vinegars the soul. Right solitude oils it. How fragile we are between the few good moments. Coming and going, unfinished, puzzled by fate. Like the half-carved relief of a fallen donkey above a church door in Finland. Perishable, it said. Perishable, it said, on the plastic container. And below, in different ink, the date to be used by the last teaspoon consumed. I found myself looking, now at the back of each hand, now inside the knees, now turning over each foot to look at the sole. Then at the leaves of the young tomato plants, then at the arguing jays. Under the wooden table and lifted stones, looking. Coffee cups, olives, cheeses. Hunger, sorrow, fears. These two would certainly vanish without knowing when. How suddenly then the strange happiness took me like a man with strong hands and strong mouth inside that hour with its perishing perfumes and clashings. So most of you probably know that uh, umeboshi plums are the uh, salt-cured, very dark, very intense uh, Japanese pickled plums. All the difficult hours and minutes all the difficult hours and minutes are like salted plums in a jar, wrinkled, turned steeply into themselves, they mutter something the color of shark fins to the glass. Just so, calamity turns toward calmness. First a jar holds the umeboshi, then the rice does. So this one is also a true story. Um, I was staying somewhere where the refrigerator ran a bit cold, and there were chickens, and this is what emerged. <laughs> the egg had frozen an accident. I thought of my life. <laughs> the egg had frozen an accident. I thought of my life. I heated the butter anyhow. The shell peeled easily. Inside it looked both translucent and boiled. I moved it around in the pan. It melted, the whites first clearing to liquid, then turning solid and white again, 
like good laundry. The yolk kept its yolk shape, not fried, not scrambled. In the end, it was cooked. <laughs> With pepper and salt, I ate it. My life that resembled it, ate it. It tasted like any other wrecked thing, eggish and tender, a banquet. <laughs> I ran out naked in the sun. I ran out naked in the sun, and who could blame me? Who could blame? The day was warm. I ran out naked in the rain, and who could blame me? Who could blame the storm? I leaned toward sixty that day almost done. It thundered then. I wanted more. I shouted more. And who could blame me? Who could blame had been before? Could blame me that I wanted more? Somehow I hear sweet Molly Malone behind that. I don't know why. Um, so so uh, the last poem I'll read is uh, When Your Life Looks Back, and this one doesn't rhyme at all. When your life looks back as it will at itself, at you, what will it say? Inch of colored ribbon cut from the spool Flame curl, blue consuming the log it flares from. Bay leaf, oak leaf, cricket, one among many. Your life will carry you as it did always, with ten fingers and both palms, with horizontal ribs and upright spine, with its filling and emptying heart that wanted only your own heart, emptying, filled, in return. You gave it. What else could you do? Immersed in air or in water, immersed in hunger or anger, curious even when bored, longing even when running away. What now will happen? The question hinged in your knees, your ankles, in the in-breaths even of weeping. Strongest of magnets, the future impartial drew you in. Whatever direction you turned toward was face to face. No back of the world existed, no unseen corner, no test, no other earth to prepare for. This your life had said, it's only pronoun. Here, your life had said, it's only house. Let, your life had said, it's only order. And did you have a choice in this? You did. Sleeping and waking, the horses around you, the mountains around you, the buildings with their tall hydraulic shafts those of your own kind around you. A few times you stood on your head. A few times you chose not to be frightened. 
a few times you held another beyond any measure. A few times you found yourself held beyond any measure. Mortal, your life will say, as if tasting something delicious, as if in envy. Your immortal life will say this as it is leaving. Thank you. Thank you. If you have questions, please do pass them to the ushers and we'll collect them up here. I'd love some water, thank you. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> it's really gin. <laughs> Who knew Jane Hirschfield would be so wild? <laughs> Your interest in uh, classical Chinese and Japanese poetry is well known, but I was interested to learn in reading about you some of your other influences, Roman Odes, mm. Emily Dickinson, Hopkins, Keats, and I was wondering if you could talk about the kinships between those forms and poets and the Chinese and Japanese poets that you're known to love. Mm. Well, um... It's very interesting in that you can find the things which move me in every poet who I've ever been touched by, affected by, influenced by, um, in these wildly different traditions. They are all, in fact, talking about the essential and fundamental currents of human life. So uh, let's take the Roman poets and the Japanese poets. Uh, long before I knew I was going to be interested in Zen, I fell in love with uh, the poetry of Horace and Catullus. And if you know anything about the carpe diem, you know, Stoic and Epicurean philosophy, it's very much about living in the moment, which is entirely what Zen is about, which is entirely what uh, Japanese haiku are about, um, and a certain number of the Chinese poets as well. And so, in fact, you know, there, I don't think there is any truth which isn't available to all people living in all places of the globe. And I think the poems which I have always loved and which I'm drawn to, they might have, gosh, generalizations are so dangerous, um, but they tend to have um, both that they are really about something, um, you know, there, there is some, some piece of grit inside the oyster around which the magnificent pearl of language has accreted, but it's not just pearlescence, it's pearlescence to a shape, to a form, to address uh, something which is difficult to take in, like we die, or we fall in love and then we die, or we're <laughs> left, or whatever. Um, so, so they all have that, that gritty kernel they all have great beauty of language, and, and almost every poem I love, I, I would guess probably every single one, has what I think of as a pivot, a turn, a transformation. You are changed when you've finished reading it. You're a different human being than you were beforehand. 
That reminds me of a question um, that I wanted to ask you about the endings of your poems, um, which often have that, that transformation for me as a reader. And I wondered if you could talk about, um, where's that question? Well, in particular, in your book after, there's a poem that ends mid-sentence. Oh, yes. And there's also, you mentioned the poem, you, you read tonight, the poem with two endings. And I wonder if you could talk about both of those poems and, and your idea of endings in general. Mm, interesting, interesting question. Um, so, so the poem and after, which, which breaks off, should I read it? It's not very long. Um, yes, why, why don't you? I had a terrible time getting a magazine to publish it because they all thought it was a mistake or they thought their <laughs> readers would think it was a mistake. They didn't trust the poem. Um, and this is the one um, which may or may not go on the radio interview I did with, with uh, KUOW today. I, I, I was referring to this poem. I didn't read it. But it's a poem which was written um, in response to two things, neither of which shows up in it. Uh, one is the Iraq War and, and the suffering of that event. And the other was the Christmas tsunami of 2004. Uh, somebody sent me an email after the Christmas tsunami, and, and in it he said, bless his heart, he said, um, Jane, I loved your poem that you wrote after, after September 11th so much. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you write about this. <laughs> and I was shocked. Um, and I realized that there was a part of me which thought, I can't write a poem about about a tsunami, there, and, and you know, there's nothing to argue with about a tsunami, you know, it's, it's innocent, it's awful, but, but what, what is there to say? And, and I began thinking about it, you know, he, he, he was that grit in the oyster with, with this question, and I began, well, why can't I? And then what I began to think about was, well, the difference between a tsunami's devastation, which is innocent, whatever that word means, and the Iraq war, which is a humanly committed devastation. And in the intersection of thinking about those two things, this poem is what came. Uh, and it came out of a quote from the Oresteia, the Greek uh, trilogy in which justice is investigated. And uh, I don't know, there's a, there, it's a long introduction and I'm not even near answering your question. But um, uh, so, so anyhow, here's the poem and, and the grammar ends mid-sentence because that is exactly what happens to people who die in a tsunami or who die as bystanders of war when a bomb lands on their house where it wasn't meant to be, but your life is cut short. So, those who cannot act so the first line's a quote from the play. Those who act will suffer, suffer into truth. What Aeschylus omitted, those who cannot act will suffer too. The sister banished into exile, the unnamed dog soon killed. Even the bystanders vanish, one by one peripheral, in pain unnoticed while Thanks. So I think you understand that ending. And I think you probably understood the other ending. So endings are hard um, in that what, what you want is um, 
You want an ending which causes an after resonance, an ending which isn't a completion until it calls forward an unwordable but very perceptible response in the writer when you find it, in the audience when you hear it. A poem needs to continue after its own duration in time because it's not complete until it completes itself inside of us. And that's where the ending actually happens. It's the ending after the ending. And if I haven't found words, which at least for me, maybe not everybody, but for me, create that effect in some way or other, then I haven't found my ending yet. You have um, a remarkable poem that led to a remarkable interaction with Stanley Kunitz. Uh-huh. And I wonder if you could tell us about that experience. Okay. Um, So I wrote a poem uh, called Against Certainty. And this is an idea, I, I, I will say this with great adamance and certainty, I'm quite sure that the worst thing in the world is someone who's sure of themselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, damage is done by those who do have no self-doubt. I think it's very important for us to always question our motives, question, you know, it's like, am I doing this because I'm sure I'm right? If I am, I'd better slow down um, and think again. So it began to some degree as another response to our political world and what we do to one another and dictatorships and fascisms and torture and, and all of that. Um, although, again, as is often the case with my work, nothing in the poem says that. Um, but its first publication was in an anti-war chapbook. Um, should I read the poem? At, 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 okay, I'll read the poem and then I'll tell you about the Stanley part of it, which completely changed it for me. Um, so, against certainty. There is something out in the dark that wants to correct us. Each time I think this, it answers that. Answers hard in the heart grammar's strictness. If I then say that, it too is taken away. Between certainty and the real, an ancient enmity. When the cat waits in the path hedge, no cell of her body is not waiting. This is how she is able so completely to disappear. I would like to enter the silence portion as she does, to live amid the great vanishing as a cat must live, one shadow fully at ease inside another. And I'm sure you can hear in that poem the same person who wrote about opinion, that when I'm strongly opinionated, I feel myself grow separate and more lonely. It's a very similar idea. Um, and, and the sort of longing to drop out of the part of the mind which is so sure of itself, which is full of opinions, which thinks it's right. Um, you know, and we need our discrimination. I'm not saying we should become stupid and passive. I'm just saying that needs perhaps to be balanced by the other side, by the great silence and what lives in it. So I thought I understood this poem when I wrote it. And then... Uh, Stanley Kunitz 
as, as you all know, our, our, our great Stanley Kunitz um, died at the age of 100. And at the end of his life, what he was doing with his assistant, Janine Lentine, the woman who, who made that book, The Wild Braid, about his garden together, what he would do would be he would read poems aloud into a tape recorder. And that was how he could read at that point. You know, he was, when he had a good moment, when he had a good day, he would read just a few poems out loud or one poem out loud. And I got an email from Janine, who I had never met in person at that time, uh, asking me if it would be all right if Stanley did this, and would I like a copy of the tape. And she sent it to me, and it turned out to have been his last good day. I mean, he lived another four or five days after that, but it was the last poem he recorded. And when I listened to it in his voice, I suddenly understood that I hadn't known what the poem was about at all. Because in those circumstances, read by him, it was so clearly a poem about the great mystery of entering death, about that uncertainty. And I was shaken and awed that this gift had been given me by his reading of it. Uh, you can hear it. It's up online. Um, if you, I don't know if you, if you Google his name, my name, and the title, uh, they have it up in a section of memoirs about Stanley on the Poetry Foundation's website. Um, so you can, you can hear him do it, and you'll hear what a different poem it is. And forgive me for this word, I know no other. It was awesome. <laughs> You've talked about consciousness as a kind of exile that humans experience. And also you've said that originality requires the aptitude for exile. Could you talk about those ideas? It seems a much more positive version of the word than, than mm. normally we think of. Mm. Well, I, you know, it is this question, and it does go back to the thing I often don't like to talk about that much in public, which is Zen practice and the, the, the knowledge of um, what it feels like when you are not separate from others. And the knowledge that most of the time we walk around inside our own skins being separate. And to a great extent, that's what ordinary consciousness is. And it's even what extraordinary consciousness is. It is something able to step aside and look. Now, consciousness is one of those words, you know, I, I hang out with a lot of scientists. And I'm wary of the word consciousness because everybody means something different by it. And you, you kind of have to classify it before you use it. You know, does it mean simple awareness? In which case, you know, I think a tree is conscious. If, if their, their leaves turn towards the light. I'm a little out there for my scientist friends when I say that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> except for the researcher in Edinburgh uh, who is working on the consciousness of plants and has an excellent overview paper about it. Um, but in general, I think 
there, there is an oscillation between feeling something and giving oneself over to it and being inside of it and then stepping back and looking at it. And that's a kind of exile. Um, but exile is expansion. Exile is leaving wherever you were and seeing more. And that's a great gift. And m many of our greatest writers are people who have known exile, whether it is uh, literal, as in uh, Czesław Miłosz coming to Berkeley for so long, having to leave his home country because he found intolerable uh, what happened to the mind and spirit of those who did what they had to do in order to stay. Um, or the exile of um, Kavafi inside the strangeness of his own self and the fact that it wasn't accepted by his culture. Um, I doubt there's a human being on earth who doesn't feel like an exile some of the time. Um, and out of, out of pain comes consciousness. Um, out of separation comes compassion and awareness and a different kind of knowing our continuity. And uh, exiles have great sympathy for other exiles. Your writing is very visual, to, to me at least, when I read it. I, seeing a lot of images, and the cover of your last two books have scenes by 17th century painters, one German and one Dutch. And I wonder if you were able to choose those two paintings, and if so, why? And, you know, how those pieces reflect your work? Well, I have, uh, I'm, I'm a very lucky writer in that I've gotten to uh, choose my own covers since 1994. Uh, actually, even the 1988 book, I, cho I chose the cover. So, so I have a lot of control about what my books look like, and I'm so happy that you noticed, because I care a lot, and I think they're beautiful. Um, and, and the still lives go back even further than that. Uh, the, the, uh, 1994 had a, had a uh, photograph of a reflection of, a, an out of focus reflection of a building in a lake with autumn leaves. Um, and I just, I love still lives. I, I love the intensity and the precision of seeing something so fully and brilliantly that it begins to speak forward of itself into our human lives and minds. Now one thing, uh, this, you probably can't, so, oh dear, I, I can't show that book because it's not published in America. Um, <laughs> but, but this book, which you probably can't see because you're too far away, anyhow, the, the most recent book, um, it's sort of got a still life in front, but then it's got an open window. It's a detail from a Dutch painting of an interior, and through the open window you can see the trees and the sky and the landscape. And I'm very curious to see if in my next book I'll jump out the window. Um, <laughs> it might be time. <laughs> but you know, I think we, we live in, we, we know everything we know through the senses. And, you know, just as I read the four food poems, you know, that's that sense. Uh, the suitcase is about hearing and how sad I am that my hearing is going. Um, you know, to see, to hear, to taste, to feel, to touch, this is our permeability and this is our wisdom. There, there's a great book, if any of you want to pursue something a little scholarly about how language works. Uh, the linguist George Lakoff co-wrote with a man named Mark Johnson, Metaphors We Live By, in which they explain 
the physical basis of everything we know, you know, all thought, all of our most abstract ideas are constructed out of the knowledge of the body, what down means, what up means, what far means, what close means, what sweet means. To call your, your beloved honey, which is what I call my honey, um, and he loves it, being called honey. He, when he first met me, he thought to himself, oh, I hope someday I can be her honey. So I was talking about my former. Anyhow, that goes all the way back. The earliest, the earliest poems that we have, the earliest writing we have, from 2300 BCE, there is a Sumerian ritual love poem in which the, the, uh, the king and the goddess are referred, my honey, my sweet. So sweetheart goes all the way back to ancient Sumeria. And it's, it's the extension of the metaphor of how we feel when we taste honey and love. Um, so that's how it works. And Metaphors We Live By is a great book. I recommend it. <laughs> I wonder if we could end with uh, your reading one final poem. Um, so I'll read a, a shorter one. Um, so in <laughs> weird introduction, um, on the Isle of Skye, there's something called the Big Horse Center, and that's what they call draft horses over there. They call them big horses. Uh, so this is a big tree poem, and I know you've got big trees up here. I'm not sure if they're the same as the redwoods we have in the Bay Area. I think they're not, um, but I've been in the Ho Rainforest, and, and uh, anyhow, so this is, this is a poem about uh, intimacy with a particular big tree. Tree. It is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a house even in this one lifetime, you will have to choose that great calm being, this clutter of soup pots and books. Already the first branch tips brush at the window, softly, calmly, immensity taps at your life. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jane Hirschfield in Seattle Arts and Lectures 2008-2009 Poetry Series. This was Sal on Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal on Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season featuring readings by Dennis Smith, Kimiko Han, Jericho Brown, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures. <laughs>